Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the different ways we get around from walking, riding or in cars, buses, trains or planes. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including Nissan adds a new variant to their small SUV, the Cash Kai. And Bob Holden raced the original Mini Cooper S, now he tests a new electric model. We have two major interviews. If you are buying a car, there are many checklists on what you should do, but what are some of the practical examples? Motoring journalist Paul Morell has just been through the exercise. And Bustech is racing ahead in building electric buses in Australia. We talked to their chairman, Christian Reynolds. Now, if you would like some more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get this edition going. Let's have the news. If you think dark glasses make you look good, then a new edition of the Nissan small SUV, the Qashqai, might be for you. It's called Midnight. The black is in smallish details, not something that makes it look like a funeral car or dressed by Johnny Cash. It has 19-inch black wind alloy wheels, tinted headlights and taillight clusters, gloss black grille, rear bumper blade, side mouldings, mirror caps and roof rails. The Qashqai is getting a bit dated. There's automatic emergency braking, but it doesn't detect pedestrians. Cruise control, but not adaptive. There's a navigation system, but horrible map colours. But there's some good safety features, including rear cross traffic alert. The CVT gearbox feels better than many others, and it handles well. But noise from the road at motorway speeds is a bit intrusive. Qashqai start at $26,500, but the midnight is $36,200, plus on-road costs. While working to reduce production costs on electric vehicles, manufacturers are also looking for ways to package EVs. Various offers have included leases, shared vehicles, schemes and packages that include a solar system for your house. BMW in Australia have an offer tailored for small and medium-sized businesses. For a short while, if you buy a new BMW or mini plug-in hybrid vehicle, battery electric vehicle, you will also receive an e-bike valued at just under $2,200. You have a choice of either an NCM Moscow Plus, an all-terrain e-bike, or the Milano Plus, a city commuter. NCM is a German-based specialist e-bike manufacturer. The offer comes after the Victorian government announced the Zero Emissions Vehicle Subsidy, which entitles individuals or businesses in Victoria to receive a $3,000 subsidy towards the purchase of a zero emissions vehicle. The BMW offer lasts till the end of June 2021. The Bus Tech Group have been building buses in Australia for 25 years, mainly from a factory in Queensland, but in the last four years they have added plants in South Australia and Tasmania. They are now producing electric buses to meet a growing demand in this country. Christian Reynolds is the chairman of the Bus Tech Group, and he feels we are evolving more comprehensive attitudes and approaches, embracing a more whole-of-government perspective. I think what we're starting to see now is uh, rather than transport being a subcategory of go- of government at a state level, 
we're starting to see a whole of government engagement relative to the transport solution, the energy strategy, the environmental impact, and the industry-based uh, benefits that 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 procurement policy and that structure can bring. So we are seeing a more vast engagement around the positive opportunity that, that mass transport can deliver. The performance and quality of electric vehicles has progressed significantly. Bob Holden has been racing cars for nearly 70 years. His biggest victory in Australia was to win the Bathurst 500 race in 1966 in a Mini Cooper S with co-driver Finland's race and rally ace Rauno Altonen. Bob had never seen an electric vehicle, so he took a new Mini EV up to see him on his farm north of Sydney. Once he overcame the initial unfamiliarity of not being able to hear the engine, he soon settled into driving and enjoying the car. He summed up the experience as follows. I can't believe how good it is and how well they've continued a program and kept it in front of itself all the way. Mm. I think that's a funny way of putting it, but to me it's just, it's grown with the technology. And that has been the news. I may mention before that my role in being a motoring journalist is that when people ask me what car to buy, I ask them what they're using it for, I then give them three options, and then they go and buy the car they wanted to. I think that may well be appropriate if, as I talk to my good friend Paul Morell. G'day, Paul. G'day, David. Am I right in the role that we play? Oh, absolutely. How many times do we go through the exercise, tell someone what they really should buy, and then they come back and, as you say, buy the car they wanted in the first place anyway? This can happen even close to home. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed it can. Well, let's just say a person uh, went and bought a car the other day. They're after a smallish SUV? Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable thing to say. I mean, it didn't even need to be an SUV, but it was it was mainly for uh, shortish trips. You're actually um, someone uh, nearby to you, and you live somewhat in the country uh, <laughs> or regional sort of areas, uh, but nonetheless the trips are short? Uh, usually, usually. I mean, in this case, let's just come to you. It's my wife. I was buying a car for my wife. I mean, and it's, apart from the press cars we get, it's pretty much the family car, so it needed to be a multi-purpose car, like most people. Um, you know, we need a car that, that can fulfil multiple functions. Right. So, yeah. yes, most trips are reasonably short, and then every now and again we sort of take off into state, or we take off, you know, on a, on a 70k journey into into town. So, yes, it, it it's varied use. You see, even 70k into town, I, I digress here a little bit, but uh, an electric car would still do you. Yes, it would. Um, yes, it would. In fact, I got quite a surprise when I when I was testing a uh, an electric car. I was driving the Volvo XC40 Recharge, and it literally came from from town to to my home, seventy kilometres, and it had just at that stage used up its its electric power. But once I recharged it, that that vehicle then worked perfectly well for the rest of the week. Didn't need to buy any fuel. It was absolutely ideal. So yes, an electric vehicle would have perhaps fitted the need. Talked about this one on a range of uh, radio stations. I mean, you take something like a Kona, which has a pretty well genuine range of 480 kilometres, 
My argument is that I often get people say, oh, but I've got to drive to Melbourne. Well, hey, most people don't. Mm. If you really are that sort of person, maybe you get a plug-in hybrid. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are so many options. Uh, I went through the exercise and, and literally decided that we didn't need a plug-in hybrid. Mm. Our power is quite economical, and it could have done the job, but no, it was it was... Like most people, we get we get emotional about it, and then we go we go sort of off on our own paths. What sort of car did uh, your good lady? Uh, if I does that sound sexist? Is not meant to. Did your uh, wife buy? Well, in fact, she's not particularly happy with me. <laughs> sorry, sorry, can we just stick to buying a car? <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the car, of course. No. <laughs> Having done the research, I just decided if there are a couple of factors came in. One is that she's driving a 10-year-old Mazda 2, which is a great little car, but on a fairly dangerous stretch of road, which our 70 kilometres is infamous for being, being quite dangerous. I wanted something a little bigger. I wanted something a little more secure. And I definitely wanted something newer because cars have come so far in terms of safety in the last 10 years. Good point. Therefore, I was able to say, oh, well, now we're looking at multiple airbags, we're looking at autonomous emergency braking, we're looking at lane keep assist, we're looking at adaptive cruise control, none of which are in her car. So I mean, it was a, almost a matter of there's nothing wrong with her car. It's a lovely little car, all of 70,000 kilometres. If anyone out there wants to buy it, you, you know where I am. But really, it was it was safety was in many ways the first factor. Then I followed that up very quickly with the fact that used cars at the moment are so expensive, bringing so much money, that it was a good time to get out of that car and get into a new car. I looked, at, funnily enough, I looked at 12-month-old cars because the old principle was buy a car that someone else has worn the loss on and found that it was almost the same to buy it brand new. Yeah. So ultimately, that's that's where I was. And I looked at I looked at a number of cars. Um, in that small, smallish SUV or even sedans, and mm. I think that they'd be very keen to sell sedans, there's a very wide uh, and, in fact, widening range of vehicles. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was hard to, and, and I've had this problem with my readers who get in touch with me, it's very difficult in the first instance to bring that shopping list down to a manageable length. Mm. Um, you really don't want to be looking at more than three or four cars. Uh, and it, it becomes a problem. Hmm. Did you get down to three or four cars? Well, funnily enough, I because you know you and I have access to a lot of data. Well, everyone has access to a lot of data now. It's quite easy to do a, an online comparison. And I basically I wanted, as I said, to indulge my wife a little. So I was keen to buy a Mercedes Benz, a small Mercedes Benz. The obvious competitor to that would be the BMW One Series, and then the un obvious competitor to that was came out of my research and that was surprisingly the Skoda Scala and obviously the Skoda Scala is considerably cheaper than either the Mercedes-Benz or the BMW mm. and on paper and this is where I got I surprised myself on paper the Scala uh, is very much lying ball with those two vehicles size weight fuel consumption on every level it's very much on on a par with the Mercedes-Benz you weren't impressed with the Scala the Skoda you know, is often recommended as a, an alternative to a branded Volkswagen vehicle. They obviously come from the same conglomerate, but you weren't impressed. Well, when you say I wasn't impressed, it's, it was a tough comparison. If you put a Scala, a $35,000 Scala up against a $50,000 Mercedes-Benz, uh, $50,000 instantly becomes, by the way, $62,000 by the time you add a few little essential yes. costs into it. 
but it's a tough comparison for that vehicle to do. The Scala was the Scala was an excellent little car. I've recommended Scotus to a lot of my readers. Mm. Uh, in fact, I've got two readers who just both bought the Octavia RS wagon. Absolutely love it. But I just found the Scala to be a little unimpressive. And this is a danger because when you look at it on paper, as I said, it's it's line ball with those other two cars. But when you actually get in the car, it's the seat of the pants through the hands thing, which you understand as well as I, it just didn't feel like it had the quality. It certainly didn't feel like it had the performance. And I basically thought, this is not why I'm changing my wife's car. I actually, so this is going to sound a little strange, but I actually tried to find something that wasn't a Mercedes-Benz. And the reason was that perceived snob value or the, the poser value, whatever you want to call it. And my wife is not happy with me because I bought a Mercedes-Benz. And for that very reason, she's one of those people who doesn't want to have to think about a car or worry about a car or pay any attention to a car. Oh, okay. In other words, when she goes to a shopping center, you know, with the Mazda, if someone runs a trolley into it, she doesn't, doesn't get upset. It has steel wheels, so she's not too bothered about curbing a wheel. The minute I put her into a, a luxury car, then she starts to worry about those things unreasonably in my mind. But, you know, she just, she would prefer to have a car with less responsibility. Because it has been around for a couple of years, hasn't it? Ah, uh, yes, it has. Except this is the B class, the new B class. Ah. This is the problem we're having with the, with the, the, the difficulty is getting cars. I mean, when you go in to buy one, it's like, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any. And even to the point where you go and you want to test drive a car, sorry, sir, we don't have one you can test drive. So the B-Class I test drove was, in fact, a second-hand car at a, at a Mercedes-Benz dealer uh, with, I think, six or 8,000 kilometres on the odometer. So that was a pretty fair, pretty fair thing to test drive and get a feel for it. I then went to another dealer who, in fact, wasn't a Mercedes-Benz dealer because that was the only A180 I could find in the, in the state or within where I could drive it and drove the A180, which to me was very harsh, quite difficult to get in and out of, and I, it didn't impress me a great deal. So I went back to the B180, and the B180, because it has a little more size, um, it's a little taller, it has more headroom, and I'll come to another point there in a minute, it has a higher seat level, so the, the seat in the B180 is like 80, sorry, 90 kilometres higher than in the A180. 90 millimetres? Uh, sorry, 90, yeah, 90 millimetres. Yeah, 90 kilometres might be sorry, just, yes, that's just a tad excessive. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, it does. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, 90 millimetres taller than in the A180, which makes it easier to get in and out of. And higher doors, higher roofline, it just makes it a more convenient car on a regular basis. And, you know, easier for rear seat passengers, bigger boot. So, rationally, I went for the B-class rather than the A-class. All right, Paul, we will catch up about some other issues. It's an interesting reflection uh, on how we go about buying a car. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And that was Paul Morell from SeniorDriverOz.com, a great little site of practicality, not just opinion. This is Overdrive across Australia. Kia launched their fourth-generation Carnival in January this year, some 23 years after the first model came here. The latest model, showing sleek design, is packed with all the goodies to face the SUV challenge. There are four models, S, SI, SLI and Platinum, two engine options, one 3.5-litre V6 petrol, 
and a 2.2 litre diesel, and one silky smooth 8-speed automatic transmission. Pricing is from 46880 for the entry-level S petrol model, through to 66680 for the platinum diesel version, plus the usual costs of course. My pick is the platinum 2.2 litre diesel. It has enough power and torque for most drivers, and with the new architecture the Carnival drives more like an SUV. It is far removed from a van with 8 seats. With more practical space than almost any SUV and a genuine 8 seat capacity, if Kia ever decides to put an all-wheel drive system in their Carnival, the SUV segment will be in trouble. Kia Carnival is an excellent vehicle, easy to drive in a way that belies its size and is just so comfortable and easy to live with. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Buses have often been considered the lowest form of public transport, yet their role is significantly underestimated. One of their great benefits is that by typically travelling on streets, they are near where the action is, where the people want to go. But with diesel engines, they are noisy and polluting. Overdrive has long held that we need a policy of make buses sexy. Electric buses are a huge step in the right direction. Now, Christian Reynolds is the executive chairman of Bus Tech Group that build electric buses here in Australia, and he joins us on the line. Christian, thanks for your time. Excellent. Thank you. Nice to be here. Where do you build the buses? We have two manufacturing plants, one in Queensland and then one in South Australia, and then we have a contract manufacturing relationship with Elphinstone down in Tasmania. Do you use imported components? How much of are you assembling parts versus manufacturing? Uh, We have two product models. We have what we refer to as an integrated product where we're building the whole vehicle and acts as the OEM. And and that sees around 96% local participation on an Australian basis. And then we have what's more commonly understood as as a cab chassis model. And that has a, an industry content or from Australian supply chain of around 65%. James Alexander Holden began his motor car business building car bodies on imported chassis. And this led to our full car manufacturing industry. You're doing a bit of both. I think that's very positive. How long have you been building buses in Australia? So Bus Tech Group has been uh, operating for 25 years predominantly in that period from the Queensland operation and then over the last four years through South Australia and Tasmania. Do the rules for buses in Australia differ from what is mass-produced overseas? Something about the width of them, is that is that a common denominator or are we unique in that area? There's probably two unique characteristics for vehicles coming into the Australian market. The one, as you identify, is the width. The second is also the vehicle service life. Vehicles in Australia are looked at for 25 years, which means obviously there's a host of engineering requirements to fulfil the life cycle of the vehicle. We're a little narrower, are we? Is that the width issue? Yes, that's correct. So that actually gives you a position to be able to be building buses specifically for our market? That's correct. I think the the Australian market as a whole, uh, we do have a, a number of imported products, uh, that comes into market, predominantly coaches and school buses, but the predominant uh, metro buses are produced here in Australia by uh, domestic manufacturers. Most of yours are the metro buses, uh, what I presume is a, what, 60 or 70 people capacity? Yeah, that, that, that's right. We produce currently around 80% of our volume is associated with 
low floor metro buses and then we also do school buses uh historically we've built double deckers as well and we're just moving into articulated vehicles now as well has the the notion and the development of electric vehicles has that shaken up the industry enormously uh, i think so i think there's been a number of policy statements that have been made uh particularly through new south wales that has created a lot of attention from both incumbents within the current industry, but then also looking at new entrants into the industry, looking at the volume requirements for the transformation to zero emission. New South Wales are keen to get every one of their buses onto electric, but by when? So some of the original policy statements were uh, looking at a complete fleet transformation by 2030. Uh, I think that may, may look further out longer term in terms of the complete transformation, just just trying to reconcile products and infrastructure is obviously going to be a significant challenge. They're dearer to buy, but cheaper to run? Uh, yeah, I mean, if we look at total life cycle cost ownership, we, we see some benefits with electric, but that's got to come down to the correct selection of, of batteries, the longevity of the energy density within the batteries. But those benefits are far and wide, really, aren't they? There's health benefits for the people. There's noise benefits. Even the noise in travelling in a diesel bus can be invasive along the way. That It's very important to take a broader view. I think so. I think also, I mean, if, if, we, if we step down into the supply chain activity and we look at rather than being importers of diesel fuel, we're now generating electricity, whether that's, Hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to see that as renewable energy as well. Uh, so we cut down on, on CO2 emissions through the logistics processes of material supply through supply chain, through both operators and vehicle producers. And then all the way through, as you say, through to, let's say, livability of uh, major capital cities as we start to decarbonise uh, some of the uh, transport legs uh, that support these cities as core infrastructure. I presume that the notion of building an electric motor is far less carbon consuming than building a diesel engine, which is more complicated and requires more process oriented to it. Is that some of the things that we can look at and see their advantage? Yeah, some of the studies that we're doing now is looking at the complete value chain proposition of emission based activity to support the manufacture of electric products versus the manufacture of diesel products and then also in operations and maintenance what that actually looks like as a total life cycle impact and benefit the broader benefits we we think of things and you've talked about decarbonization and there is a global issue there yet one of the great benefits of a quieter non-polluting electric bus must surely be to the local environment as well. But it also uh, gives individual patrons and individual who are walking through these high streets much more of a, uh, a pleasant experience, not only from a noise level, but also from a pollutants level. How long can a, what's the range of an electric bus at the moment? I think uh, we're, we're seeing a number of buses across different manufacturers do do comfortably between 300, 350 kilometres and complete their service requirements uh, on a single charge. 
So that that's a great place for us to acknowledge as a, as a foundation. And we all experience technology improvements. We've only got to look at cellular phones to look at how battery structures in cellular phones have improved dramatically. We're all expecting the chemistry structure of vehicle batteries to improve dramatically over the coming years. And that's all going to be coming down to the confidence of the energy density that we can put into the batteries. Hydrogen, is it possible to run an, uh, well, are you looking at the development of hydrogen as an alternate to batteries to run electric motors? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a very good opportunity for us, uh, nationally to be looking at hydrogen fuel vehicles given the geography uh, and the landscape that Australia is. I think what we're kind of looking at is a split strategy between uh, electric-driven vehicles uh, in our metro environments and then hydrogen on our outer metro and regional. Uh, with that, that looks like a structure that could operate the, the, the most effective and efficient. Um, but I think as we start to move through this, we'll see more hydrogen options come into the market from different manufacturers and different players. Hydrogen may not take up as much weight. It might well be able to get 400 or so at least range. And so, say, Sydney to Melbourne, you could have one big depot in the middle. That sort of approach may see us... And, of course, hydrogen, you can refuel relatively quickly. Are those the advantages you're seeing in the for the more regional trips for hydrogen-powered buses? Yeah, and we're also starting to see a number of hydrogen hubs pop up into different states. So, we, and I, I think the transport industry, uh, sorry, from the bus side, will follow the uh, road haulage side. That seems to be very much opportunities that are coming into market. And I think we'll be able to piggyback off some of those uh, infrastructure plays that are being developed. Overall, you see a very vibrant future for your particular company and other companies like it. In regards to the sector, I think we're at the we're at the start of a transformation phase. I think we're positioned well to be an integration partner for a number of technologies, and I think it will be an interesting, let's say, economy based strategy where we're looking to create more manufacturing, create more value content for the dollars that we're spending on delivering these types of services across Australia. I think we, we, we're we positioned well to potentially pick up a role within this for the long term. So you need policy that understands the breadth of advantages, both globally, locally, jobs, noise, reduction in pollution. It needs a public debate and public policy that is embraces the depth that is available in this new technology? I think what we're starting to see now is uh, rather than transport being a subcategory of, go- of government at a state level, we're starting to see a whole of government engagement relative to the transport solution, the energy strategy, the environmental impact and the industry based uh, benefits that, that that procurement policy and that structure can bring. So we are seeing a more vast engagement around the positive opportunity that, that mass transport can deliver. Christian Reynolds, thank you very much for your time. 
Excellent. Thank you. And that's Christian Reynolds, the executive chairman of Bus Tech Group. They build electric buses here in Australia, and as we've heard, they're pioneering with a broad sense of understanding the benefits that are more than just reducing pollution. They're part and parcel of us moving to a better society. You're listening to Overdrive. Car design is a subjective thing. What is beautiful to some is plain ugly to others. Then there is the universally ugly vehicles like some of the older Sangyongs. Amongst the recent designs, the Audi A7 Sportback stands out as a beacon of elegance and style. Launched in late 2018, the second generation A7 Sportback combines the Audi qualities of smooth, powerful engine, sublime ride and handling and the convenience of a lift-back design for greater practicality. The pick for me is the 55 TFSI Quattro S-Tronic with a 3-litre V6 mild hybrid turbo petrol engine produces 210 kilowatts of power and 600 newton metres of torque. A 7-speed dual-clutch transmission drives all four wheels through the brilliant Audi Quattro system. It's equipped with a host of standard luxury, safety and driver assist features and is relatively value priced from a bit over $133,000 plus the usual costs. I love the A7, it's simply a beautiful design. It makes a fantastic long distance family tourer. I can imagine myself hopping in the A7 and driving to Cairns and simply enjoying the drive. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Christian Reynolds, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Now, Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can get more information at drivenmedia.com.au or listen to one of our podcasts available on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.